Mark Twain wrote about it in Life on the Mississippi. Eudora Welty photographed her shadow here. Scenes from two major motion pictures were filmed on the grounds of what's known as Windsor Ruins. The ruins of a once grand home are among the most photographed historic sites in Mississippi. But the mystery of this place is what it looked like before it was destroyed by fire 130 years ago, and why people from all over the country, all over the world, are drawn to these ruins. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring the history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard, and this is the story of Mississippi's Windsor Ruins. The winding Mississippi Road leading to Windsor Ruins is a lot like the ruins of the Antebellum Mansion. Lonely, remote, and eerie. Each year, thousands of history and architecture enthusiasts and many a curious soul travel down Rodney Road in Claiborne County. They follow signs that lead them to a turnoff on a gravel road And this is the moment they see what's been called the Stonehenge of Mississippi. 23 columns towering above the outline of the remains of a Greek revival mansion that was constructed between 1859 and 1861. When you stand in front of these columns, each standing 40 feet tall, you're struck by their size and you immediately begin to grasp how large Windsor was. When construction was completed in 1861, the 17,000-square-foot plantation home was the largest in the American South. A lot of folks assume it was destroyed by fire during the Civil War, but it survived the war and would stand strong in this remote region of Mississippi until 1890. The man behind the vision for Windsor was Smith Coffee Daniel II. Born in 1826, Daniel was part of a close-knit group of families known as the founding members of the Petty Gulf Hills region. The Daniel family, along with the Freeland, Magruder, and Skinner families, came to Mississippi in the early days of the cotton boom. Smith Coffee Daniel II married his cousin, Catherine Freeland, in 1849. Daniel studied law, which prepared him for his inheritance of about 21,000 fertile acres of land in Mississippi and Louisiana. He carried on the family business of administering the Daniel estate, growing cotton, when cotton was king in Mississippi. The first recorded cotton crop in the state was grown in 1795 in the then Spanish-ruled district of Natchez, This was the beginning of a new era that would change the world because prior to this, the American South was known for rice and tobacco crops. Eli Whitney's cotton gin was just gaining popularity because cotton was still a marginal crop in the South. That changed in the early 1800s when Mississippi growers began using a more productive and successful cotton seed. The discovery of petty golf cotton in Rodney, Mississippi, 
transformed cotton markets around the world. Around 1820, Dr. Rush Nutt developed Pettigolf cotton on his Rodney plantation. The seed produced what locals called white gold because it slid through a cotton gin more easily than any other strain of cotton. Pettigolf cotton was the key factor in Mississippi becoming the top state for cotton production. This cotton was being grown when the indigenous tribes of Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and northern Louisiana were being removed from their land. Their removal meant any white man with the money and desire to grow cotton could get the land to do it. Throughout the 1820s and with the Indian Removal Act of 1830, the federal government surveyed, divided, and auctioned off millions of acres of land for mere cents on the dollar. Farm families like the Daniels purchased and imported slaves from former tobacco states and set about making their fortunes as cotton planters. Mississippi educator and author Toby Graves notes that in 1800, the white population of the Mississippi Territory, which encompassed the area that makes up Mississippi and Alabama, numbered just over 5,000. By 1860, Mississippi had over 350,000 white residents, and the slave population increased from 3,500 in 1800 to 440,000 just before the Civil War. Census records show that as of 1860, the Daniel family claimed about 100 men, women, and children as property in Claiborne County. The number of slaves at their Windsor plantation would almost double after the home was completed. The enslaved men listed in the 1860 census in Claiborne County labored to build Windsor on the Daniels' 2,600-acre farm, the dream home that would showcase the wealth and status of Smith Coffee Daniel II. David Schroeder of Maryland was the architect who oversaw construction of Windsor. We know this because of a detailed journal written by the owner of another home Schroeder designed in Mississippi. In 1857, he built Rosswood, a Greek revival mansion in Lorman, about 15 miles southeast of Windsor. Schroeder signed his name on the interior wall above the main entrance, and the owner, Dr. Walter Wade, kept a detailed journal which mentioned Schroeder as the planner of Windsor. How Windsor looked before fire destroyed it in 1890 was a mystery for nearly 100 years. All of the architectural drawings, notes, and photographs of the home were burned the day Windsor was destroyed. But the Daniels' grandson, Smith Coffey Daniel IV, who was born at Windsor and lived there until it burned, used his skills as a civil engineer and his memory of Windsor to complete a floor plan. From his description, we know the mansion faced west toward the Mississippi River, about four miles away. Windsor was a Greek revival mansion designed with a main three-story block. Its 29 columns were made of bricks and covered with stucco. Each of the Windsor columns stood 40 feet high and measured about four feet in diameter at the base. 
those columns stood on 10-foot paneled brick platforms that served as supports. These brick plinths rested on a below-ground brick chain wall. Under each column, the chain wall expanded to accommodate the dimensions of the bases. This below-ground footing was critical for structural stability because each column weighed about 24 tons. The columns were topped with ornate iron Corinthian capitals and joined by ornamental iron railings at the height of the third floor. The mansion was designed with 23 rooms and topped with a cupola, or rooftop observatory. There was also a service wing on the east side of the main block of Windsor. There were four ornate wrought iron stairways, eight chimneys, and Windsor had modern amenities, including indoor bathrooms, an interior water tank called and stored rainwater for the plumbing system. There were fireplaces made of marble in every room. The basement featured the practical needs of the plantation home with dairy, storerooms, commissary, a schoolroom, and a doctor's office. Daniel Family Records have noted outbuildings around the 2,600-acre property, which included a blacksmith shop, several steam cotton gins, slave quarters, along with a carriage house and stables. And we know the people the Daniel family enslaved constructed a majority of their mansion. This includes all of the bricks needed to create the foundation for the home and its towering columns. Those bricks were made at a kiln on the Daniel property. Enslaved men, women, and children made a majority of the bricks we see when we visit any antebellum plantation or historic building in the South, including forts. Historians at Georgia's Fort Pulaski National Monument have shared what it was like for slaves to make these bricks in the 19th century. Here's their description. Making a brick in the 19th century was a laborious and messy process. Soil had to be mixed with water and then stomped into clay. Debris like sticks and stones had to be removed and the wet mixture placed in a wooden mold. Then the still wet brick had to be removed from the mold and allowed to dry for several days before finally being placed in a kiln to harden for nearly a week. Once the brick itself was made, it then had to be transported to the construction site for use in the building project. Slaves labored in grueling Mississippi heat and humidity, doing work for which there was no reward. They helped create a work of art, Windsor Plantation Home, for their master and his family. Enslaved labor kept construction costs at bay. Smith Coffee Daniel II only needed to purchase materials. He spent roughly $175,000 for the materials to build Windsor, using slaves for the hard labor. Today, that would equal about $5 million to build the largest home in the South. Daniel and Schroeder brought in skilled carpenters, masons, and painters for the artistic details of the home, with many of those skilled workers coming from New England. 
Windsor's column capitals, the ornamental railings, and cast iron stairways were manufactured in St. Louis, shipped down the Mississippi, and transported to the Windsor Plantation. In the spring of 1861, the Daniels moved into their grand home. Mississippi had seceded from the Union in January 1861, joined the Confederacy in February, and by April, the Civil War had started. The same month, just weeks after taking up residence in his dream home, death came calling for 34-year-old Smith Coffey Daniel II. Daniel died at Windsor of what was believed to be yellow fever on April 28, 1861. The Daniel family remained at Windsor after Smith's death and hoped, along with the rest of the country, that the war wouldn't last long. Catherine Daniel supported the Confederacy by allowing soldiers to use the Windsor Observatory to monitor Union ships moving down the Mississippi River and alert their men of Union advances. Catherine also hosted Confederate officers at parties at Windsor. In 1863, as Union forces were growing in number and starting to occupy parts of the region, she decided to host a dinner party. She sent signals to a group of neighbors and friends, along with several Confederate officers, letting them know they were invited to dine at Windsor. Union forces intercepted one of her signals and sent a group of officers to her home, dressed in civilian clothes, so they could crash the party and arrest their Confederate counterparts. A captain in the U.S. Marines wrote the following in a letter describing what happened that night. So we entered, and there in the parlor of the house was quite a party, singing and laughing and having a fine time. Among them were three Confederates dressed in their gray uniforms. I walked in and went up to the one that seemed to be in command, touched him on the shoulder, and inquired, Are you a Confederate officer? He promptly replied, Yes, I am. At this, the singing stopped, and the ladies present came around and insisted we Yankees were not gentlemen, and we should not spoil their evening by arresting and taking prisoners, these three Confederates. The ladies grew very boisterous and attacked us, with their fist and fingernails, and refused to allow the arrest. We then took them to Vicksburg, where they were placed in prison. Catherine Daniels' resistance could do very little to push back the wave of Union forces moving into the region and the change coming to Windsor. After the party, Union soldiers became permanent guards at Windsor, and federal troops began to use the observatory to track Confederate movements. Ulysses S. Grant's campaign to capture the critical Mississippi River port city of Vicksburg began the night of April 30th, 1863, when around 20,000 Union forces made a river crossing at Bruinsburg, a community situated less than two miles from Windsor. Catherine Daniel and her family we're suddenly in the thick of what National Park Service historians have called the greatest amphibious military operation 
in American history up to that time. The war came knocking on the front door of Windsor when General Grant established a headquarters in the mansion. The fight for control of Vicksburg intensified with the Battle of Port Gibson. Hundreds of wounded soldiers would be transported from Port Gibson to Windsor, and the home was transformed into a hospital. Catherine Daniel and other family members who were living at Windsor were allowed to remain in the home with orders to move to rooms on the third floor until the Union vacated Windsor. Everything changed after the war, but Daniel family letters tell the story of a family that was strong, adapted, and quickly retained what one family member called a comfortable lifestyle. They leased part of their land and continued to grow cotton. Daniel family letters noted that a large number of former slaves did not flee Windsor. They remained there after the war. That was a difficult decision for former slaves once they learned they were free. An estimated 25% of the enslaved who fled plantations and the South and liberated themselves during the Civil War died when they were hunted down by Confederate forces, their former owners, or due to poor conditions that led to disease in Union contraband camps. When the war ended and it became clear the federal government had no plan in place to help the enslaved transition from slavery to freedom, former slaves often did not know what to do, had no guidance or assistance from the government that had fought to free them. One former slave said freedom meant being just like a turtle, cautiously peeking out of the shell to understand the lay of the land. And the lay of the land in the South was unsure and dangerous for former slaves. They could leave the plantation where they had been enslaved, try to find jobs with working wages in a region that had been devastated by war, where people still saw them as less than human, or remain on plantations with white overseers who had enslaved them. It was called freedom, but it certainly couldn't have felt like freedom. A few years after the war, in 1868, Catherine Daniel married Dr. William Williams from nearby Rodney, and the family settled into their new life at Windsor. They were able to move forward, retain wealth, that drew visitors to stay at the grand home, including Mark Twain. He was said to visit often, joked that the home was so big it felt more like a college, and spent time in the observatory, viewing the Mississippi River, which served as inspiration for his life on the Mississippi. All was well at Windsor, until Monday, February 17th, 1890, the day Windsor was destroyed by fire. In an interview decades later, Smith Coffey Daniel IV recalled the events of that day. He said around 10.30 a.m., he and a few other people went up to the observatory to get a good view of the Mississippi River and Louisiana. They were there for a while, and he said, coming down, a young man threw a cigarette into some trash made by carpenters doing some repairs. Soon after, someone yelled, 
fire, and he was told to leave the house. Within minutes, Windsor was burning from the top down. The sky over the Mississippi River was said to have loomed heavy with smoke as neighbors rushed to see what was happening and offer help. As family and friends did what they could to control the flames, it quickly became clear there was no saving Windsor. Catherine Daniel, who earlier in the day was preparing for a dinner party, stood under an oak tree and watched Windsor burn. A Mississippi newspaper reported on the fire on February the 21st, sharing the following. The palatial dwelling on Windsor Plantation burned to the ground last Monday. Most of the contents were also destroyed. These included not only a great deal of elegant furniture, but many costly heirlooms and much other household property of value, such as jewelry, silver plates, and a large library. We regret to learn that neither upon it nor its contents was there any insurance. Catherine Daniel Williams moved her family to nearby Retreat Plantation, where she lived for the next 13 years. It's where she died on March 6, 1903, at the age of 72. Catherine's daughter, Priscilla Daniel, who had married Joseph Moore Magruder at Windsor in 1888, inherited the Windsor property after her mother's death. The ruins and property remained in the Magruder family until they donated it to the state of Mississippi in 1974 for historic preservation with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. Following the fire, all that was left of Windsor was a few pieces of china the family salvaged from the ashes, and 23 of the original 29 columns remained standing. The iron capitals were also relatively intact. The remaining six columns of Windsor fell during the fire, and their truncated lower sections remain visible at the site today. A few sections of the ornamental railing in the upper gallery remain attached to columns. Four cast iron stairways believed to be a part of the home are no longer at the site. One was removed sometime between 1890 and 1912. It was installed at Oakland Chapel on the campus of Alcorn State University. The Alcorn campus near Windsor was originally Oakland College, founded in 1830 by the Daniels and other families who had come to the region during the early days of the cotton boom. As to the other three iron stairways, their whereabouts are a part of the mystery of Windsor Ruins. The 1971 nomination for the property's addition to the National Register of Historic Places notes that a resident of Port Gibson, a Mr. R.L. Ritchie, helped with cleanup efforts at the site and said he had heard through the years that those three stairways had been sold for scrap iron. Now, other claims have been made about those stairways, which have added to the mystery and intrigue of what Windsor really looked like, something that was debated for 100 years. That mystery has always been a part of Windsor's appeal, part of what's drawn people to the remote Mississippi site for generations. Now, the floor plan sketch by Smith Coffee Daniel IV 
helped create a clearer picture by the 1970s. And following the donation of the property to the state of Mississippi in 1974, there was an archaeological study of Windsor ruins. Their research helped confirm details of the footprints of the mansion. But it would be the discovery of an 1863 sketch of Windsor that would fill in some details of the appearance of the home and add new mystery. In 1991, a diary belonging to Lieutenant Henry Otis Dwight was discovered in the Ohio State Archives. The Union officer served with the 20th Ohio Infantry during the war and had been at Windsor during General Grant's Vicksburg campaign. Inside his diary was a sketch of the grand old Windsor that revealed some of the house's exterior details but left architectural historians questioning elements of the design, including whether or not there were four iron stairways. Dwight's detailed sketch shows only two, which left historians asking, why would Dwight omit the stairways, considering his sketch was so incredibly detailed? That archaeological report the state of Mississippi ordered at Windsor in the 70s measured drawings of the Windsor floor plan and concluded there were four exterior stairways and stone footing supports at the ruins where the stairways would have rested upon the ground. Then there's the mystery of the indoor bathroom water tanks and the observatory atop Windsor. We know there was a water tank in the upper part of the house that trapped rainwater that was used for the plumbing system. It's believed the water tank was either in the attic or the cupola. Mary Ritchie, wife of Mr. Ritchie, who had helped with cleanup efforts at Windsor, had consulted with Smith Coffee Daniel IV and painted a reconstructive oil painting of the home. Daniel IV told Mary the cupola was really just a cleverly disguised water tank that looked like an observatory when you were looking up at Windsor from ground level. Mary Ritchie's painting depicted the cupola as a square structure with no roof. But Smith Coffee Daniel IV's floor plan excludes a cupola or observation area. In fact, it does not note any use of Windsor above the third floor. The mystery surrounding what Windsor really looked like grows when you consider Mary's painting, Smith Coffee Daniel IV's floor plan, and then look at the 1863 sketch by Lieutenant Dwight, because his sketch shows a cupola with a roof. It's a reminder that we will never really know every detail of Windsor and its appearance. The plans were destroyed in the fire, and all we've had to rely on since were the memories of aging family members who lived at Windsor and the floor plan and sketch that may or may not have included a little artistic license. As to the modern-day condition of Windsor ruins, time has taken its toll. Weathering and some early preservation efforts that went awry have led to some of the plaster falling from the remaining columns, and there's exposed brick. There was so much concern about falling debris, the state installed a fence around the remains, in 2016 to protect visitors from getting too close. The State Department of Archives and History 
is working to repair and conserve the columns with an ongoing stabilization project. It's a costly venture, but it's worth it because this is an important site that should be preserved. Windsor is a part of the complicated history of Mississippi and the ruins, a symbolic reminder of the complicated history of the South. When you visit Windsor ruins or any plantation in the South, you see remnants of the past that will make you stand in awe. Architectural wonder and grand homes that tell the story of a past that some are still coming to terms with and others like to romanticize. We should never forget that as we walk these grounds, we're gazing upon the wonder and remains of structures that were constructed by hands that bled, bodies that were overwhelmed by unbearable working conditions, and they had no choice in the matter. In the case of Windsor Ruins, those enslaved on the plantation made the bricks and constructed these towering columns that have stood the test of a fire and stood the test of time, standing strong for over 160 years as tornadoes, tropical storms, and unrelenting Mississippi heat and humidity have challenged their strength. Those conditions have weakened the columns, but they are still standing. There is something that feels almost sacred about Windsor Ruins, and you feel it when you walk the grounds. We know the Daniel Family Cemetery is nearby. Union soldiers were said to have been buried on the grounds during the war. And though undocumented, slaves must have been buried on this property as they were on every plantation. There are echoes of the past at Windsor, perhaps the spirits of those whose blood, sweat, and tears built the mansion and continue to make us stand in awe when we look up at its columns that cast long shadows across the Mississippi soil below. Walt Grayson is a Mississippi author and broadcaster who has so perfectly summed up what many of us feel when we visit Windsor and sites like it, writing, the 23 columns that stand, stand as a silent monument to the past, a part of this nation's past that has made all of us what we are today to one degree or another. We are all a part of the shadows of Windsor. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. Back in 2014, when I moved to Mississippi, I visited Windsor Ruins for the first time with a really good friend. This was before the fence was installed around the ruins. And the fact that we barely spoke a word as we walked the grounds speaks to the spirits of this place. But there was a moment as we were standing in the center of the area where the home once stood, that I said something and I realized these columns, these ruins, create a sort of outdoor amphitheater. Now, my friend Tracy has a beautiful voice, and I mentioned to her that she should sing something. This is her singing in the middle of the ruins 
at Windsor. We sing praises to your name, oh God, praises to your name, oh God, for your name is great and greatly to be praised. We sing praises to your name. Oh God, praises to your name. Oh God. That amphitheater effect was another testament to the beauty of Windsor Ruins and those columns that have stood strong for more than 160 years. If you have never had the chance to visit Windsor Ruins, you can view photos and videos along with sources for this episode in the show notes at southernmysteries.com. Seth Parker, a commercial and architectural photographer from Nashville, researched known architectural details of the house and created a 3D rendering of what Windsor looked like. It's beautiful, and you can see that at southernmysteries.com or on our social channels. If you are new to Southern Mysteries, welcome, and thanks for checking out the show. If you want to hear more stories, there are exclusive episodes for Patreon members. You can catch up on all those Southern Mysteries shorts, as they're called, when you join today at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. And even if you can't financially support this independent show, you can support and share these stories by rating and reviewing Southern Mysteries where you're listening and sharing the episode on your socials to encourage friends to check it out. Thanks so much for that. And thanks for listening.